All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the Atlanta series of the four-year consideration season on the drop wraps up with the re-recording mixers of Atlanta. Let's do this. Welcome today, our re-recording mixers, Diego Gatt and Sam Ejnez. Welcome to the drop. Okay, get, you have to give me the tea on Atlanta, and I'm going to start. Are you allowed to tell me about the floorboard creak in episode 301? Why did that happen? Tell me. Why do you think it happened? Oh, it's not fair. I know this whole thing was like a Warshack test for the viewer, but like, I kept waiting for like corn pop grandpa to like over his shoulder when he turned around. <laughs> and I was like, this is so harsh. The cinematographer wouldn't tell me. The production designer wouldn't tell me. I have to get Donald, don't I? And he won't tell me either. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I think that's part of the beauty of working on a show like Atlanta is that we leave a lot for the viewer. And I think that's part of what makes that show so impactful is that instead of showing you and, and laying everything out in a very concrete sort of here it is way, it, it involves the viewer. Like you're actually more involved in what's going on in that show and your perception of what's happening. And I think that people really respond to it. It's been very wild following this season on social media and like Reddit and the the theories and the things people are coming up with and pulling out and the details that they're catching. And, and it's really impressive. And I don't think I've, I've worked on many shows where there's that level of like, you know, Oh, you know, they were wearing this shirt, but it could mean this and it's this. And I think that's why people respond to the show. I mean, also the writing is exceptional. The messages are so strong. And on the sound side, we get to explore and play and build these really, really deep, detailed, emotional soundscapes. Diego, you look like you had something in there. No, I was going to say that we're not going for anything real. It could be real or not. Um, we're not trying to make it sound authentic um, in, in the terms of like realistic. Um, that's not our goal. Uh, our goal is to, to just find what's the message or what could the message be on each scene and play the sounds in a way that goes in that direction. Um, so yeah, by the the, the end of uh, of three oh one in Atlanta, where everything goes away, the TV is still there on screen. The 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 nothing seems to change visually, but the sound completely goes away. And there's no, of course, there's no realistic reason for that. It's purely poetic, if you will. Yes, it's time. And that's that's the way we approach 
um, the the whole season. On that same episode, the end of the first scene in, in the boat. We are cursed too. Oh, shit! When the lights go down and we follow that with backgrounds going away um, and the hands, we're not trying to make it sound real. <laughs> There's no such a thing. And that that allows us, that opens the range of possibilities to anything, really. Like there's no one, if there's no one real thing, then anything can be. And then what? If anything can be, then which option do you pick? And that's why we try a lot of things on stage. And we talk about it and we, we discuss it with uh, Trevor Gates, our uh, supervising sound editor first uh, and we all have ideas and then we decide to go one way or we try one thing and then we decide like eh, how about we try this other thing and we try it and then we decide what we like and then when uh when hero comes to stage um either with kyle or isaac depending on whose episode is that uh we we talk all about talk about it all all over again and then we sometimes we change our our ways or sometimes they're like oh i didn't think of this i like this direction you you guys are going because there are so many options and we keep changing things until the very last minute sometimes big changes not just like oh lower this footstep a little bit or i can't understand this particular dialogue line Sometimes we just go completely different um, on the very, on the last five minutes of of the mix of the whole episode. With that information, I literally cannot even venture a guess as to which episode you submitted because every single one was a portrait, like a, a literal brush strokes, like. I've been putting my face up to each of those episodes, just like, how did you craft that? And so, I mean, okay, yeah, please tell me, which episode did you guys submit for Atlanta? We submitted the last one that aired last night, but it was not easy. It was so hard because pretty much any episode was an episode that could have been submitted. Thinking about that, that the freedom that you guys had to have felt, but also the constraints because it's still television and you have to hit a deadline, but like, Episode 308 and the drug trip, like that watching Paperboy go from the streets with Darius into a museum, a quote unquote museum into a nightclub. And then that scene, I'm so angry with all of you. I feel like I'm a pretty good viewer and I'm paying attention, but I did not get that until he was slumping down in that alleyway. And you're so right, like none of it needed to make practical sense, but I felt every beat of it because of what you guys were doing in the background psychologically to make those things come to life. I mean, we're going to work our way back to Tarar, I promise you, but can we start in Amsterdam? Well, that episode is actually really interesting because I think over the years, we've all seen, you know, the various takes on a drug trip. And it was very important to everyone that we not rehash that. And I think the strength of that episode is everything seems fine. Kind of. Is it? Wait. And by the end of it, you're like, 
oh no, things are very much not okay. But we wanted to make sure that we were experiencing the same thing that Al was. It, it was very key to be like, you know, he doesn't think he's feeling anything. He's like, I'm, it's not hitting me. I, I don't get it. But everything around him is all a little weird. And I mean, there's like the, the baby getting tossed around in the alleyway, the, you know, his walk through this weird museum. There's just so much happening. And, you know, you're kind of watching it going, this is a little odd, but it's not overt. It's not telling you, oh, they're kicking in now. And even just the the nature of um, of his partner through that, whose name I am completely blanking on right this moment. Lorraine. Um, Lorraine, thank you. Is Lorraine real? Maybe, maybe not. And that's that's kind of like a, a really great example of that surrealism that we strive for with Atlanta, where it could be grounded or it could go in a completely different direction. Jumping ahead to the very end of that episode, I this is one thing that I've had debates with, with the very few people that I have debates with about television shows with, because it just feels so obnoxious. But like, this is a literal piece of artwork. This feels like Warhol and Basquiat years this season of Atlanta. Um, but the very end of this episode, when uh, Paperboy wakes up in bed and he asks Ern, who owns my masters? Mm-hmm. The beat, my heart fell out of my butt waiting for that response. You were negotiating my labor contract. Who owns my masters? You do. Was it written that way and played that way? And, or was it edited that way? Or did you guys have discussions about that beat before Earn responds to say you do? Yeah, that pause, that is the most important bit of silence that's in that entire episode. And we didn't talk about it sort of explicitly, but we've worked with Hero and and the whole crew on a number of different projects, prior seasons of Atlanta. And once we we track the theme of Paperboy, I mean, an overarching theme, at least, that I pulled away and I think we discussed a lot is, you know, Paperboy is successful. He's in this whole new world. And this is the first episode where he really starts to kind of question it a little bit of like, what's going on. And like, we see with Darius, you know, not paying the bills and the whole question of who owns the masters. And it's just such a pivotal moment that we all, when we were mixing it, had that feeling of like this moment is that final, like it's that lean forward. You're waiting for the answer and you're not sure what it is because of the previous, you know, 30 minutes of show. And then when you get that response, when he says you do, that's this incredible relief. And just like the whole episode, just, Oh, wow. Okay. And you get that relief with 
the same. It's Al. You're feeling what Al is feeling. And that's just carrying the same thread of we are following the emotional arc of Al. That's where I was going then with training to the bone, because that not only uh, the nightmares after that one and the bangs on the door, but we'll come back to that. Um, that even had a lot of Donald's music in it. So crafting that experience, and, and obviously it was one of the bottle episodes, um, and I'm very interested in that with you guys, both you know the differences between the bottle episodes in Atlanta and then the European episodes all over, but with Trini to the Bone, how much of that was led by the music and obviously the Trinidad and Tobago cultural impacts were meant to be there, but how much crafting of that came either from the, the sound design from editorial and how much of that was then dug into with you guys on the stage. No, that episode came to us very well formed. And I mean, they usually do. We always start our mixed day uh, on Atlanta. We watch the episode down with the guide tracks. So it's fresh in our mind, but also so that we can kind of understand the, the the major points to hit the the treatments that that they're sort of going for and then we have a discussion with trevor kind of after we've watched it down and he's like hey here's some of the notes from when i was spotting it with with hero and you know isaac or or kyle whoever was cutting the episode and uh after that we kind of dive in and train you to the bone that funeral scene is incredible and i think we spent the most uh, the most time working through it because it's an intricate sort of diving in of, you know, the music and then the the arguments break out and people yelling and kind of making sense out of it while maintaining a level of, of mayhem. And I think the only real change that would have come from the guide is by the time it got to us, they had recorded like a loop group. They had more voices. They had people, uh, we had the Foley, we had a lot more robust effects and we were able to sort of heighten it. And that's, you know, uh, for a, a show like a situation like that, it's really becoming a bit more additive and taking the idea that is presented within the guide tracks and presented from editorial and then embellishing it and building it out and uh, making sure that when we start adding all of that in, we don't lose our focus. We don't turn it into sort of a mush. Um, and I think that's kind of the big that's our, our most vital job as mixers is to guide the ear to the elements that you need to hear. And whereas our, our picture, our, our sound editorial will provide and build out and, 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 and create these incredible soundscapes. We then kind of go through and modulate everything so that it's one seamless, but also so that, you're not overloaded and it doesn't turn into noise. I actually, many years ago, uh, a mixer I worked with put it as the sound editorial is like the art department on a film set. They build the world, they put the elements in place, and then the re-recording mixer is your director of photography, is the person taking you across this world that's been built and directing your attention to the different places as needed. And I've always, that's always stuck with me, um, especially for shows that get very busy, very loud and training to the bone is very much similar in that way, where 
if we played everything just flat up, that would be really difficult to follow. And by finding the moments to sort of ebb and flow into the music, into the design, into um, even like the quiet moments that bookend that act, uh, that's, you know, that's part of the job. It's the best part. Well, I can't think of a better lead-in to Tarar than that, um, because golly, uh, you know, obviously there are, there's the overarching reference to Amelie, like that is Van's final chapter of her journey. But there were also, for me at least, Scorsese moments, Tarantino moments, there were, um, you know, callbacks to just so many different, like beautiful, the, the end, not the end scene, but uh, Shanice looking at the Eiffel Tower and the, the, the gurgle, um, things of that nature. But I kind of just want to say that much and then ask you guys to, to tell me what the hell you thought when you got that design guide and how you would start digging into all of those locations and experiences and Van's breakdown. Yeah, that was a fun one, too, because it's another situation where you think by the end of the episode, you're like, so this does this really happen or was this just, you know, a construction, a way of telling what really happened again in a poetic way? So there was no need to play anything in any kind of realistic way if we didn't want to. Um, so we don't mind just taking things out or selecting what we play, what we don't, as Sam was saying, uh, and certainly playing sounds that wouldn't otherwise be there. Like when you hit a baguette against the floor, regardless of how many weeks it's been out, it doesn't sound like a baseball bat, but ours does. Because that's what it means. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters what it means. Um, so that kind of liberties and that can, those those kind of like it could be jokes, uh, just for comedy. But there are a lot more than that. It goes way deeper than just the just the joke. I mean, to go back to the baguette in the room, um, that entire sequence, you know. The first time we watched it down, we were like, okay, this is going to be something very wild to work with. And um, we also went through, you know, there's the, uh, if you listen through, you hear the the heavy hits, the baseball bat sounds. Um, we actually went through and added a layer of crumbs um, of the baguette uh, on every hit. And there's even a, uh, a crumbly, um, sort of unsheathing as she pulls the, the baguette from her bag. With some uh, pump? Brett? Okay. Just, you know, it's a show where we get to work on these little details and you might miss them if you're not really listening for them, but, you know, they, they play just enough that you're like, no, it's just a really stale baguette that, you know, is is also kind of the, uh, to, to take a theater term, the Chekhov's gun of the episode. That, that baguette is there from the very beginning. And as uh, Zosha says, 
it was worth it. The baguette was totally worth it. Totally worth it. I mean, so then take me down into the kitchen and there's, again, a hell of a lot happening in what is ultimately a very small space with a lot of moving pieces and parts from the whir of the refrigerator to the chopping that's happening in the background and ultimately the reveal of those damn hands, <laughs> like all the way through then to the crash of the plates and whatever you guys did. And maybe it was just Zazie alone, but to bring forward Atlanta van versus Amelie van, what an incredible sequence. I think a lot of that comes from Zazie. She she did such an amazing job the whole season. Just, I think a lot of the season people are like, what's going on with van? And then this episode was just nailed at home. You're like, okay, I understand now. Um, really in that case, we, we already had a really incredible performance. Uh, we just kind of took, we wanted to take care to preserve that intensity of that performance, that shift from this kind of surreal, almost dreamlike state of the Amelie moment to Van realizing what's going on. And, you know, that moment starts very bare and she turns and where there's like a silent moment and she starts to realize and music starts to build. plates and throwing and she's screaming and just how that all escalates is so important to following the arc because it and when it begins she's like i'm not okay and by the end of it she's really not okay and it was up to us to kind of guide that escalation uh that scene is so incredibly powerful and then the following when uh with candace and van at the, uh, you know, beside the river at the Eiffel Tower, having this very in-depth conversation. I was watching TV all night and, and then Amelie came on and I was like, I want to be, I want to be Amelie. I came here and I I can't, couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't do that either. Well, it's because you're cooler than Amelie. I'm not cooler than Amelie. <laughs> that scene, in some ways, even more so than down in the kitchen, that took a lot of work and effort because they were shooting in the middle of Paris. Uh, so Diego had to go and, you know, did a really, really awesome job cleaning up as much of the production as he could because again the performance was so key and so vital and so important to that moment um 
that it, it really helped lend that emotional impact that we were kind of going for in that season closer. Yeah, we try to keep as much production sound as possible. Uh, try to not use ADR. I think we had the whole scene looped just in case because it was really, really noisy. Uh, it was way more active. The backgrounds, yeah, the production backgrounds were a lot more active than what you might think by looking at the scene that feels pretty quiet, but that was something that we had to build. Uh, so denoising that scene was uh, was uh, some was time consuming, took a little time. And then the last, I think that the last uh, brush stroke was adding little breaths here and there uh, to stitch uh, all the takes. Uh, so there were a lot of those added that just final, like was the, the last thing that made it, uh, made it sound a lot more real. Because if anything, that's a real moment. And it had to feel a lot more real than anything else in the episode. Well, and just to uh, share with you guys and the drop viewers, because uh, I don't, I don't actually know if you guys would know this, but we interviewed cinematographer Stephen Murphy for that episode, and he kind of unpacked for us the fact that you have to be very heavily permitted to film in that location. And you can only film for 50 minutes, five zero minutes, because every hour the Eiffel Tower does its whole light show and you're not allowed to film that. So not only were they dealing with that and, you know, short chunks of time. And then <laughs> there was a couple next to them getting engaged. And so this couple is walking through production and she's blindfolded so that she doesn't know what's happening. And then they have to like tiptoe over cords and production is like standing back, like excited to watch this happen. And then he gets down, he pops the question and she takes off her blindfold and all of production is cheering and screaming. <laughs> she had no idea. And they turn around. It was hilarious. So for just Paris regular noise along the CN and all of that, like, well done, bravo. <laughs> if I could ask about the Wigga episode where you guys essentially got to uh, work on a film noir and that too was just so many different environments and uh, you got to work with a flamethrower. Tell me about that one. Yeah, we had some fun with those flamethrowers. Well, also, you know, two guys with different flamethrowers, they sound different, you know, making sure that it has a character. Like the flamethrower is a recurring theme in that episode. It's, you know, one of the first sounds we hear is a flamethrower in the video game. And when we finally get it introduced in the world, in the, the world of the story, it's, uh, it's a big moment. And that first flamethrower blast is awesome. That was just so cool. And um, yeah, Trevor and and our we had uh, effects editor uh, Russell Topal and Paul, um, those guys killed it. They just they put it all together. They made this incredible beast of a of a it's it's animalistic almost um, flamethrower that is brings us through the pivotal moments of that episode and that kind of turning point. You know what? What if I burn you first? Oh wait, 
Too late. Was that a dark skin joke? That whole sequence was, yeah, it, it was cool. It was the film noir. It was the, it was the detective running through the, the halls trying to, you know, get the guy. That's why I called it a film noir because it wasn't just the black and white, just the way that it all unveils itself and the, the sounds of it. It was just, it really nailed it. That's all I can say. Nailed it, guys. Um, well, I wanted to ask about similarly cancer attack, because you also have a lot of music in that one and you have these creepy spaces that you're working in. And even when they're doing the interrogation, when the little boy is there, it's just so creepy that I'm kind of, uh, I'm at a loss for like what what did you go into that one with, with the intention? Because you really are still in an active concert venue. And even though you're underground, you would normally, like you said, this is, this is whatever you want it to be. It doesn't have to be practical, but that was just so noticeable that there is no like, don't, 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 or the sound checks. And even when urn is in the earpiece, guys, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Like we don't have to deal with any of that. And so just wondering about the intention for that episode. Well, that's one of the episodes where the use of silence becomes so important. Um, and the, and um, the, we like to say uh, this theory of the, the empty bookshelf, the best way to show that a bookshelf is empty is put one book. That's how you know that the rest is empty. So the, um, the that episode was was very heavy on the on the silences which makes it so important for the sounds that are currently there that that do survive if you can hear those things it means that the place is very quiet i think again it's a kind of an exp exploration in contrast that episode, you know, it starts very lively. We have the people loading in, we have the radio calls, we have a lot of activity. And by the end of the episode, you know, especially the, 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 the scene with Al and Wiley sitting in the office alone and Wiley plays the song for, for Al. Uh, it's so almost uncomfortably quiet. And we even during the song took out the backgrounds. We slowly peeled everything away so that you, as a viewer, you kind of zoom in on this, on this moment, on this really powerful performance. The, the song that Wiley performs is just, it, it hits so hard. And we wanted to make sure that nothing got in the way of that. And that we, we felt the same emotions that again, Al and Wiley in that moment had. You were my mirror, my best friend We used to be one and the same But now my hero's gone and left me here To play this evil game I swear I saw the other side I never needed less Because I don't need 
I don't want more. You know, again, it would be easy to just add all of the, you know, the music, the pre-show music, the loud crowds, make it very thumpy and raucous. But by isolating the characters a little bit more and having just little pops here and there, like when we do go up on stage, it's loud, it's it's rambunctious, it's a cool, it's people getting ready for a show. And then once we're backstage, yeah, there's a couple people moving things around here and there, but like it just gets quiet and it's that that lull that lets you focus on the you know the conflict lets you focus on what's happening in the in the moment that episode yeah there's a lot of great opportunities especially you know it's a it's an older concert venue we in the backgrounds we made sure that you know you feel the building settling at night like you feel uh, the people leaving and the life kind of exiting the room and almost a sterile kind of like you hear a buzz and a hum and a clock ticking and that's it. Nothing else. No people. A lot of great exploration of space in that episode. Just one other ask if there's anything that I've missed because there was so much across 10 episodes, if you would be kind enough to bless me with any of those things that like, you know, Easter eggs or a moment from any of them that you were particularly proud of. I would love to hear all about it. It's a, it's a big ask because it was so hard to nail down which episode we wanted to submit. Um, Cause there's just, every episode has something. There's like a moment or a, a scene or a sequence that we're just really proud of. And we were really just super thrilled with how this season turned out. Um, it's, you know, we don't get to work on, on shows that give us so much sort of latitude with experimenting. How about the, um, the screams in the, in the neighborhood in the last episode? Mm. Um, did we finally use Donald or not? Do you remember? I can't remember. And I think by the time it. Yeah, that, that people, when the people are shouting from the windows, Tara! Tara! And you can hear that. You wanted to see Paris? Ah, we're in Paris! Tara! What was that? Hey, what it's was that? nothing, relax. Did she say Tara? I don't know, it sounded like a bird. Look, we had uh, Donald doing some of those that were super processed and, and like bouncing off all the walls and the, and the buildings and sometimes layered with some other actors. And there were like 10 of them along the, the whole scene. And some of them had some Donald in it, some uh, in them, and some didn't. And I can't remember if finally we left them, um, but we had some Donald there. Donald likes to record some things for us and send it to us, uh, even though... Uh, we not always use it, and a lot of the times it, it's unrecognizable, but we we play a lot with that, and we have a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I think there may have been a little bit of Donald here and there, that that's, but that's kind of the magic of it, and he he is just so good at getting like the the vocal matches, some of the vocalizations that he recorded for the show were incredible, and you'd never know that they were him 
uh, which is a lot of fun because then you're kind of like, was that Donald or was that a sound effect or was that this? And, which I think leads a bit more to the surrealism that we're kind of leaning towards throughout the entire season. I did think of something that I, I was very proud of. Um, in the big payback, there's a, a very <laughs> high speed chase between um, a man and a Prius. I and- was, oh my God. I have to say that that like, I, that scene was so good. And I had asked Christian Springer, the cinematographer about it. And I was like, was that practical? And he was like, that was practical. He was running. And I mean, that was bananas. You should be proud because I had every oh, about that. Well, well, I I really liked that scene. And um, my wife has an older Prius that matches the, the, the car he was driving. So I was very familiar with the sounds that it made. So I actually went through and we added those little backup beeps that they do and make it just feel like you feel that Prius is, is really pushing as hard as it can. It's not going very fast, but you know, that, that whole sequence was just a lot of fun where he drives up, you hear the music and then it just turns into mayhem for a couple of seconds there. And I was really happy with how that, that all played. Oh my God. So well done. Yeah. No, they, they, they did such an amazing job, just the whole arc of the season. Yeah, that's that's writing. But I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of shows where you give every character their own soundtrack or like, you know, score or something, too. And I think those are some of the moments um, we work very closely with the show Ted Lasso. And it's like at this point, by season uh, end of season two, going into season three, every time I see a character, I expect to hear their soundtrack. And it's almost, you know, it's a subconscious cue that I think a lot of people don't understand that that goes into a show from the composer to the sounds like just bravo. And especially on something like Atlanta, where you really did get to play. I can't congratulate you enough. This was such an impactful season. And I thank, thank you both for letting me bend your ear for the better part of an hour on this show. So bravo. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you guys joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for having us.